Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Legal analysis of the most watched trial in the country ahead on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. We've been talking a lot about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Today we have some extra help. Vince, who do we have with us? Joining us today is Will Chamberlain. He uh, is a lawyer, a co-publisher of humanevents.com and senior counsel at the Internet Accountability Project. And really grateful to have him uh, join us here on, on our program to talk about this trial. Uh, Will, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, my first question is, why is this trial even continuing? Because I'm watching uh, as all of the prosecution witnesses seem to be making Kyle Rittenhouse's case really well, that this was a self-defense case. And just off the top of my head, I think of things like the revelation that Joseph Rosenbaum said, if I catch you alone to Rittenhouse, I'm going to kill you. Uh, also, the revelation that Rosenbaum was diving for the barrel of the weapon, the revelation that Grosskreutz, the guy who had his bicep blown up by Rittenhouse, uh, acknowledged yes in court. He was pointing his own gun at Rittenhouse before Rittenhouse ever fired. It seems like with all of this testimony, I'm beginning to wonder why this case was even brought. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I think in the absence of any social media pressure, this case would have been declined, uh, like prosecutors wouldn't bring it. And that happens every single day across the country. Prosecutors decline cases every day, even if they don't think very much of the defendant, they just decline cases they don't think they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. I think that the amount of media attention put on this case made that decision not possible, and especially with, I think, probably some political pressure from um, the mayor and other people in Kenosha made it so they, they had to find prosecutors to bring a case that just wasn't even remotely viable. Um, that said, who knows if the actual legal viability of the case is going to matter to the jury. But, you know, based on what's happened, it's been, I mean, outright embarrassing for the prosecutors. Their own witnesses have humiliated them. They found themselves constantly trying to impeach their own witnesses. That All this stuff is bizarre. It almost never happens in criminal trials, to my understanding, that, and it, that I've seen. Um, and it shows how strange this prosecution is. So is there is there any uh, chance? I know that um, Dominic Black is also uh, facing charges for giving a gun uh, to a minor. Uh, what do you think of that case? And and do you think that that case has legs? The fact that he actually provided the weapon to Kyle Rittenhouse and perhaps put him in the position that you know he shouldn't have been in at seventeen. So th there's an interesting first question about whether or not. Kyle was log legally able to possess um, the AR-15 at age 17, right? And that's that's not as clear as people seem to think. Like a, a lot of people on the left seem to think that's open and shut, but the, the law as written in Wisconsin is very, very strangely written. It basically says that, you know, minors aren't allowed to possess certain weapons if it's dangerous, et cetera. But then, then there's this caveat, which says, and if they are not in compliance with these other statutes that deal with hunting and that apply to kids under 16. Um, and so, you know, for... Basically, the way the way I did this analysis, I think almost a year ago on Periscope and, and, and on Twitter, um, but basically my reading of the statute suggests that um, under the way the proper reading of the Wisconsin statute, somebody who's between the ages of 16 and 18 is allowed to open carry a long rifle, right? Not a handgun, but a long rifle in Wisconsin. Um, but that said, the judge in this case 
has kind of deferred. He thinks it's a question for the jury. So it looks like there's some good chance of a, a conviction right now on that misdemeanor gun charge, I think. Um, but I think that, that that charge is very vulnerable on appeal because it's a really, it really is a question of what the law actually says. And that's the classic thing that you know, can be appealed and, and an appellate court can review it very carefully um, and come to a conclusion whether that gun charge can even stand. Now, I should note that as we're speaking to Will right now, we, this is, as this recording is happening, it's in the midst of Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony. Uh, Rittenhouse himself has taken the stand. He's first being questioned by the defense who has called him as a witness. Um, but just before we started recording, we got to see a limited amount of that. A lot of it just consisted of who are you, who did you go to Kenosha with, and, and what brought you there, and what activities were you doing that day? Um, but is this wise, Will Chamberlain, to bring the defendant, in this case, Kyle Rittenhouse, to the stand in this trial? Is there wisdom here? I don't think so. I think it's ultimately a bad decision. Um, I can see some of the underlying logic, but I still think that the risks outweigh any potential benefits. So and, and on, as, in terms of his, the substantive benefit of testifying, like what new information that Rittenhouse could bring, he could speak to his own intent and what he was thinking and what he was doing. Right. Um, and, but by the same token, we've had every single prosecution witness explain that Rittenhouse didn't start shooting until people attacked him. Like, and so in closing, that, that it wouldn't be hard to demonstrate that Kyle was, was using self-defense, that he was facing, clearly facing a deadly threat. Not, you, you don't have to take Kyle's word for it. You can take all the word of the prosecution witnesses who conceded that fact. Um, and then there's also, there's always the risk of just letting a, a prosecutor demonize um, your client and make them look bad on cross-examination. Cross-examination is a very powerful tool. I mean, just an endless series of questions that now Kyle is obligated to answer truthfully. Um, and they can be leading, they can be very, you know, it can be very, very tough. So a skilled prosecutor can really take advantage of it. Um, on the other side, I think is the benefit of maybe humanizing Kyle to the jury. I think that that might help, right? Like if, if, you know, as just to ensure that if some of the jurors are not thinking about this from a purely legal perspective, that they're like, okay, well, this is just really a 17 year old kid. And, right. you know, that might I mean, help. as the, as his, uh, as the defense began questioning him today. Um, mm -hmm. they started with like things like, oh, what were you doing earlier? And those things included, he was cleaning graffiti off of the, uh, off of the side of a high school volunteering, doing that. They have a photo that they mm -hmm. showed in the trial showing him scrubbing uh, graffiti off of a Kenosha high school. So, uh, I think that gets right to the point you're making. They're, they're trying to make an emotional appeal to the jury that mm -hmm. this guy is out there because he's trying to volunteer for the public good. Right. And I mean, but even so you could, I mean, if you're doing, if you're strategizing as defense counsel, you can get other people to testify to those facts. Like what was Kyle doing the day of, right? He did it with other people. So you could just bring them in, sit right. them up there and avoid the potential of him getting cross-examined. Um, but then there's also, I think one thing that maybe weighs on the side of letting him testify is these are really bad prosecutors. Um, they're, they're very, they're very bad at their job. Uh, they've gotten humiliated routinely on multiple occasions um, before this getting caught. I mean, for example, you have the Daily Caller's own Richie McGinnis made uh, one of the had one of the prosecutors do a face plant in front of him and let him, you know, with a question of what was Joseph Rosenbaum thinking. Um, and then again, they had they had the other prosecutor get up there, um, ask questions of a, I think a guy with a, the photographer with a speech impediment. And, uh, you know, that that guy asserted that the prosecutors wanted to change his story. And it was one of the most humiliating cross-examinations by the prosecutor I've ever seen where the prosecutor, you know, asks, says, we didn't tell you to change your statement, did we? And, and the, the witness is like, yes, you did, actually. Oh. That's exactly what you did. It was, it was embarrassing. So 
I don't know that these prosecutors are capable of actually fully exploiting the mistake, you know, the potential of a cross-examination of the defendant, but it's still, you know, if you're, if you're weighing it out, it's still not worth it. Right. I think, and I think a big part of that is the, the defense has done so well for so long, making all the prosecution witnesses, making it clear that all the prosecution witnesses support Kyle's self-defense claim that I don't, I don't think it's worth even just opening the door to any potential like demonization of your client. Well, first thing I want to say is that uh, when you Google Will Chamberlain, for some reason, uh, I came out with the uh, impression that you scored 100 points in a game. Um, <laughs> yes. But, uh, Will, you are our legal expert. But one of the things that I've, that I've read and that I've noticed is that uh, a lot of times, and, and you kind of alluded to this, that juries, uh, even though you know, it may be one way or another legally, they're looking for storytelling and narratives. And to me, it seems like Kyle Rittenhouse, and you and I talked about this a little bit off air, uh, the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse is, is young, he's kind of doughy-faced and, and you know speaks in a way that you think he's pretty much a young uh, kid uh, put into this, is, this circumstance. Do you think that possibly among, upon uh, cross-examination that maybe even if they demonize him, that it'll come across as the defense bullying him? There's some risk of that. Yeah, I think especially, you know, I think Kyle probably has a very good sense of why he did what he did. So, you know, I think I, I think there, there is also, yeah, very good risk that the prosecutors come off poorly and for, you know, further kind of establish like the narrative of like this, this kid was the victim of being attacked. Right. Right. Um, and there's and, and this is just a reenactment, another version of attacking this kid. Right. Via cross mm -hmm. you'd be a very aggressive and unfair cross examination. So, um, I mean, it must also be that, like, if you're if you're the defense attorney here, uh, the defense team, like you obviously have to assess your own client and think to yourself, man, this kid, he'll stand up under cross examination. Like he'll yeah. he'll he'll he's got the capability. He's thought this through. They. I mean, so what kind of prep do they do with Kyle Rittenhouse ahead of this? Do they put oh. him through kind of a murder board and say, okay, we're going to ask you like the toughest possible questions and see how you stand up? They, they damn well should have, right? And, and if they didn't, that would be very poor lawyering. I mean, my understanding is I didn't do a lot of, you know, I didn't do any criminal work, but, you know, from talking to, you know, criminal lawyers about, about this subject, it's if you're, usually they try very hard to persuade um, the defendant not to take the stand. And it is doing exactly that, a murder board where they like, you know, take the role of a prosecuting attorney on a cross-examination to sort of show them what would happen, right? Like, here's what would happen if you take the stand. I'm going to now play the role of the prosecutor. And this is what's going to, this is what it would look like. Um, this is why you shouldn't. I mean, hopefully they did that. If they didn't do that, that would be very, a very, very bad decision. Um, because I think Kyle absolutely needs to be, if he's one, he probably shouldn't have done in the first place. But two, if he is going to testify, he needs to be ready for what a cross-examination is going to look like and what, you know, how to, you know, stay composed and not make himself look terrible. So is that the, the failure also of, of the prosecution that they didn't actually uh, go through some of this with their with the, the witnesses that they called uh, and actually figure out who's a good witness and who isn't? Yeah, I mean, I, it seems like they just called everybody to the stand. Uh, and maybe the prosecutors felt like they had to, something that happens is prosecutors feel like they have to bring up important witnesses. Otherwise, they'll get, you know, the defense will just jump up and down, call them later and be like, why didn't the prosecutor call you? For example, like if they didn't call Richie McGinnis, who was right there seeing the crime, that would, you know, put skepticism in the eyes of the jury when the defense inevitably called Richie and had him tell his side of the story. 
So maybe there's, you know, somebody, sometimes you're forced to call as the prosecutors, I would assume, like witnesses you wouldn't otherwise want to. Right. Um, but that said, I mean, the level of unpreparedness here and, and how often it's happened that the prosecutors have found themselves impeaching their own witnesses, face planting, allowing a witness to, you know, get a Duncan on them. I mean, it's, I, you never see this stuff. Like this is, which is why these cases get declined. In the well, this time. is, this goes back to my original question, Will. It's like, why is this trial even happening? So like, it, it kind of feels like the prosecution is kind of going through the motions and all these face plants are just a product of the facts. It's like, oh, like, you know, no matter what the prosecution tries they keep running into this brick wall of the truth. And it, 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 what it, what it makes me fear in that I feel like that this suspicion gets confirmed all the time is that sometimes the justice system is not used to actually pursue justice. It's used to keep the public at bay. Like it's designed, like, it's like you can take a, an innocent man, throw him in trial. And the reason that he needs to be subjected to all of the costs that that includes is because we're trying to keep the mob back. And that's like, I don't know, that seems like a pretty, unfair arrangement and not and not a sign of a healthy society no it's not at all um i think i mean i i honestly think this is prosecutorial misconduct whether that actually can you know whether you know kyle could win a malicious prosecution case probably not but you know to me this is yeah. my understanding of the role of the prosecutor they have a unique role in our justice system every other lawyer is has a client that they're supposed to zealously represent and they're not focused on broader societal consequences right generally speaking i mean there are rules of professional responsibility but most of them are like, you need to represent your client. You need to defend your client's interests. You can't betray your client. Now, the, the um, flip side of this, though, is like maybe the facts like playing out in a courtroom like this can help actually settle the public's understanding of, of what took place, I guess, because, you know, it, there was a, a lot of inflamed rhetoric around the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I mean, at one point during the presidential campaign, Barack, I mean, sorry, Joe Biden himself uh, posted a video suggesting that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist. So, I mean, there's you know, maybe this can have the effect of sort of calming everyone down. Okay, like, here's the facts. And uh, here's how you think about it. Now, it's not fair to Kyle Rittenhouse, in, in this case, that he would be subjected to that. But that could be, I guess, part of the thinking. Well, I mean, you would one would hope, but then the media doesn't really do a fair job of portraying the trial either. I mean, if you read the media headlines, it sounds like they're trying very hard to, you know, ignore the fact that, for example, the prosecution's own witnesses have supported the self-defense claim. They, you know, put up random snippets of the direct examination about how, for example, Gage Grosskreutz was scared and thought he was going to die mm -hmm. and omit the part where he admits that Kyle didn't shoot him until he had a weapon pointed at him. Um, and there's, you know, this sort of you know, the selective, this, I guess what you'd call like misleading selective reporting, right? You know, it doesn't work in a court of law, obviously, because there are lawyers there to ask every question necessary and get every bit of information out there. Um, but it also, it kind of, you know, if we want trials in the sense to provide like public and a public airing out of these grievances and, and therefore like provide public understanding, well, it doesn't really work if the media doesn't do their job. Good point. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. You know, we were talking earlier about uh, race and class. And I do think it's kind of interesting that Kyle Rittenhouse will be probably propped up, at least by the right, as an example of malicious, malicious prosecution. And maybe even as you stated, prosecutorial misconduct. When we see that all the time around poor and Black people, particularly people like uh, Khalif Browder, in many of the cases that have gone on, and this is so uh, common among poor Black people, and I think it's kind of a cruel irony that it's going to be Kyle Rittenhouse's face that becomes the example of that. When you know Black people are an innocent Black man is seven times more likely to be convicted of a murder than an innocent white man, 
an innocent black man is three and a half times more likely to be convicted of a sexual assault than an innocent white man. You know, uh, 12 times when it comes to drugs. And it, I think it's kind of interesting that we're, we're making Kyle, Ritten, Kyle Rittenhouse is going to become the face of that when this happens all the time to poor black and brown people. So that's just a comment that I, that I wanted to make. Sure. Well, I mean, I think here's a what you're seeing is sort of the end result of this kind of strange phenomena where much of, I think, a decent chunk of the energy of the criminal justice reform movement is not towards exonerating like wrongfully prosecuted or innocent people, but rather towards ensuring that there's certain convictions. Um, wow, Kyle is crying. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just sorry. Like, I was looking at the screen. Kyle is like breaking down on the stand. Right. Um, anyway, uh, but but to make the point, like, you know, the the problem with sort of amplifying certain instances of using viral social media and not of like wrongfully charged or convicted people, but rather of people who the criminal justice reform movement has think has committed crimes and demanding their prosecution creates this sort of phenomena where you have these prosecutions that otherwise would have not been brought, but are now being brought on weak foundations and then very, very prompt, you know, and then suddenly become very, very prominent and amplified. And so I think actually in, in some sense, this is probably, you know, I think a strategic part of, you know, I mean, this is, I think, you know, if I were getting advice to the Black Lives Matter movement or whoever is in charge of that, it's like they need to make a strategic decision about whether or not they want to keep pushing this kind of, like, this wants to be a big part of what they're moving for and like rallying around to get these people prosecuted when based on social media stuff and not being realistic about like with the facts on the ground, because that's what's going to happen. You're going to have Kyle Rittenhouse because everybody made such a big deal out of him. Well, now his trial is being watched by the entire country. And if it is a classic, if it is a malicious prosecution, if the prosecutors are humiliated, well, that's salient in everybody's minds now. So I, right. the, just just because I got distracted, as you said, that he was crying. So I kind of looked over at the uh, the feed to see to confirm what you're saying. Of course, it's true. But I, I mm. and so in, in so doing, I, I got pulled away from your argument. But let me just see if I can summarize it, if possible, or at least um, uh, my, think, give you my thought, which is that there's this pressure that in the world, like, so in other words, if Black Lives Matter type people are coming out and they're saying, hey, there's all these terrible prosecutions of people on the basis of their race, the answer to that is to improve the criminal justice system, to make sure that people are only charged for crimes that are actually committed and are provable in court and to Im improve the quality rather than to make it so that a lot more people are subjected to low, low quality prosecutions. Right. Uh, so so it's like, it's like, this is kind of that, I mean, that, that central, uh, uh, tension between between the differences between sort of like equality and equity like equality in, in an ideal world is like where everybody uh, is treated well in a high quality environment and actually faces consequences that they deserve equity unfortunately it, as it's applied is always about tends to be about tearing people mm -hmm. down to lower lower quality standards and that should not be the case certainly in the criminal justice system or anywhere else that's right. not what equity is but you know we, we we've already <laughs> talked about this we don't need to go through that again Right. I don't, I don't, I won't speak to the equity versus equality debate, but I will, I will speak to the question of, I think the, there is sort of a, well, you don't have to call it equity, whatever it is, but there is, there's some kind of force animating uh, the left that is not just about trying to ensure that there's reform so that like black people are not unfairly prosecuted, but just try, there's a little bit of like, it needs to be even, right? We need to right. even out the score. Yep. So we need yeah, to make no, sure, right. And so in that animating force, like while might find via, you know, targets where it's like, okay, clearly this is a very unjust non-prosecution. This person should have been prosecuted, but they're picking spots where it's like the Rittenhouse case, you know, adults, every lawyer takes two self-defense twice in one L, right? You take it as in criminal law and you take it in torts. So 
any lawyer, if they honestly look at that video and they're serious about what they saw, they'd be like, that's self-defense guys. This is not a viable prosecution. And so, you know, whatever, whatever that force that's animating this sort of like, we need to get even that's, I think, end up, it ends up being counterproductive for exactly the reason you talk about, because if, you know, either you're putting somebody in jail unjustly, which is wrong, right? right. Like, you know, everybody's entitled to due process of law, or you get these embarrassing kind of acquittals that, and that were with prosecutors face plant and that require, you know, essentially the media, you know, raising up this massive storm and angering everybody and then ignoring what happens when, you know, the truth comes out in a court of law. So, so I think the motivation for some people, and, and I, I, I reject the idea that this is something that comes out of Black Lives Matter or something like that, but I do think- The left, I, I would say the left broadly. Yeah, yeah, I no, I, I can accept that. I, yeah. I, I do think uh, the point that is, that a lot of people get hung up on is that, you know, white men who, cre who commit violent crimes um generally are have a better chance in the criminal justice system so it's not that you want to equalize this idea that you know to have them tried unfairly it's the idea that they're more likely to get away and they're more likely to, to have a strong defense and they're more likely you know we've seen a lot of things that have happened and all of a sudden they have a gofundme that has a million dollars in it and that doesn't happen for people like khalif browder in the south bronx so I think what people are saying is, nah, these people need to be as aggressively uh, prosecuted uh, as, you know, any black or brown or, or young person, uh, black or brown or poor person uh, that's in that circumstance. Now, Jason, sometimes I it, it is kind of a social media mob yeah. where all of a sudden people start, uh, you know, having an opinion without actually looking at the facts of the case. Um, but I, I also think that, a lot of this is just wanting to see people tried as aggressively and as fairly across the board. And what we're seeing is that our criminal justice system is not fair anywhere in a lot of cases. It just so happens that, you know, the way we police and the way things are in our, you know, the, the lack of equity in our country actually leads to black and brown people being prosecuted more. I do wonder, Jason, uh, to what extent, and Will might know too, uh, to what extent this also could break down on simply economic lines. You know, we, you and I talk a lot about the, the sort of the coincidence of racist, uh, racist, but excuse me, race and economics. Uh, and like how many people with public defenders, you know, end up with worse outcomes than those people can afford high, you know, high priced lawyers. Like I like where where does where does that break down compared to like for instance if so, you were going to break down public defenders but uh, 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 defendants with public defenders what does the racial breakdown look like there Yeah, I mean so, it's uh, gonna yeah sorry it's gonna I mean I don't want to speculate too much in terms of like the broader like you know what is the actual you know rate I don't, I'm not a sociologist I don't and I'm certainly not a criminologist so I don't study this stuff or sure. or the criminal justice system broadly uh, but I can speak you know as an experienced lawyer I know public defenders and and things like that and. I mean, it's going to, a lot of that depends on how heavy the public defender's caseload is and how much time they can allocate to given cases. Right. right. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and some of them are just wildly overwhelmed. But there's also the fact that public defenders are often extremely good criminal defense attorneys. Um, and partially that's because they do it every single day and they do it in a, a lot on of an reps. industrial scale. Yeah, exactly. They get a lot of reps. Like I know, you know, I have, I have good friends who are, who are public defenders. And like if I, if they rep ended up having the time to represent, a client with seriousness. I'm like, they would do as good as any criminal defense attorney 
that you'd be trying to get, except maybe like the really elite, elite people, maybe those are better. So for like the super mega wealthy, but like you're, you know, if you have to choose between your normal public defender and, and sort of your normal random criminal lawyer in a town who's just doing in private practice, if they don't have the public defender experience, if they don't have something like that, did they haven't gotten in all the reps, they're not going to be as good as the public defender. Oddly so, enough. You know, you know, it's interesting, Will. I, I remember uh, when I was, I think I was in high school and they had a public defender come and visit our class in order to, you know, speak about what they do at their job. And one of the things that came that I'll never forget that this public defender said to the class is, you know, we don't try to get you off. Our, our job is to get you a deal. Our caseloads are too large. A lot of times our clients um, have mental illnesses and can't even understand what it is that we're trying to tell them. Uh, you know, they have learning delays. A lot of times we're trying to get them a deal um, mm -hmm. rather than aggressively prosecute or excuse me, defend Sure. Uh, that's true. Especially when you start ramping up the caseloads, right? That's something that, right. and that's, that's sort of a, that's a policy question about you need to invest more in public defenders, get more people on the, you know, inside and, and change some amount of prosecutorial policy to, to, to lo lessen the burden. Mm. So what, um, what's your, what's your opinion of, of prosecutors um, like Larry Krasner and some of the more progressive prosecutors that we've been seeing come across the country? Um, I am not a fan of those guys because I, I think something that a lot of people take for granted is what I would call safety privilege, not to be cute, but it's a real thing. Like I, I, I've noticed, you know, one thing I never have to worry about or almost never like where I live is feeling secure in my safety and property. And, and that's not a common thing. And it's, I think really a really oppressive way to live is when you're constantly having to think about like the security of your person and your property, like whenever you walk the street, whenever you do anything. Um, and crime has a really dramatic impact on public life. That's why defund the police does so poorly even in to defund the police does poorly in black areas too, right? It's not like this is sort of a uniform thing. Um, so when I look at people like Krasner or Chase Boudin, who just allow, you know, basically are just allowing mass criminal activity on the streets, like allowing rampant shoplifting, not prosecuting it. Um, they're making their cities really bad places to live. And it's most sharply affecting those who are living in situations of precarity uh, and not affecting like the wealthy who, you know, can afford private security if they want it. Um, you know, I think it, there's a reason security should be a public good is that it should be available to everybody. And so, you know, the flip side of like, well, we're just not going to prosecute is like, well, you're not going to perform your basic function of providing public safety and law enforcement to everyone. It's only going to be available to the wealthy and to the, those who can, you know, exit and leave your jurisdiction and live in a suburb where the law will be enforced. So, well, but isn't the argument that they would make um, that they want to prosecute serious crimes and prosecuting marijuana possession is just waste a waste of time and resources so that actually perhaps those prosecutors that we were talking about uh, can be free to you know yeah but i mean things Go like ahead. marijuana prosecution isn't really like the, the big deal like in many of these cities that's been a low priority for years like you know in san francisco for instance you have the recall of chase Boudin, who's you know parent like i mean I, I really think chase is actually kind of a scumbag like his parents murdered uh multiple police officers or were part of a conspiracy to murder them his dad got you know 30 to, they, they got seriously long sentences 
And like, and every time he would talk about them, he would never talk about the victims of their crime. He'd just talk about how unjust the sentence was. And I'm like, no, this, they were, they, they, these are intelligent people who joined a, cons, you know, a bank robbing conspiracy that ended in the deaths of police officers. Like that you, your, your parents have no excuse. I'm sorry, like no excuse at all. Like what they're unlike, there are plenty of people who maybe have an excuse to commit a crime or don't understand what they're doing. Your parents did not. Your parents are, you know, are, are deserve their sentences and every, every bit of their time. Um, but anyway, one of the things that Boudin is facing is his own prosecutors in San Francisco, who are not exactly righty people, right? These are liberal people who are saying like, he's doing things like not prosecuting aggravated assaults and like, I mean, he's, he's, he's letting go of prosecutions that the prosecutors themselves are like, this is appallingly disrespectful to the victim of a serious crime to the point that they're, those prosecutors are now supporting his recall. Um, and so, you know, I think marijuana possession isn't isn't the issue there's essentially a uh like i think with some of these people and, and a lot of the the sort of soros funded prosecutors that they're doing more than that they're they're letting you know serious criminals off they're they're taking incredibly generous plea deals for serious criminals that effectively don't vindicate the suffering and harm done to these victims and 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 to me i think one one people one thing people forget about criminal justice is as important as whatever deterrence it's not just about deterrence it's also about vindicating the fact that other the victims' lives matters, right? Not to borrow cheekily from another point, but that if you know if you punish a murder vic, a, a guy who committed a murder with five years in jail, what are you saying about the meaning of the life of the victim of the murder, right? Like, do they not matter? You know, like you took their whole life and you only have to pay for that with five years of yours. Like, it, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm I can be like. I can see the you know broader need for criminal justice reform without while simultaneously thinking that like the the specific way these prosecutors are implementing it is appalling. I always um, wonder in this in, in when it comes to these types of prosecutors, like what if if you assume good faith on their part, like what do they think the end goal is? Like because you know these these communities are are tend to be as you mentioned the most vulnerable, and they're the ones who continue to live in the most fear and and to have the most danger as a result of these policies. Um, it, 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 it baffles me that sort of not enforcing the law and, uh, letting and going easy on people who deserve, uh, consequences for imperiling their own communities. Um, it, it's just continue, is kind of the MO and, and it shouldn't be. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't really understand it. I think it, I mean, you, and, and, and it some of it, honestly, like not, not to be cheeky, but it goes, you know, Chase Aboudin's parents were in the weather underground. What was the weather underground doing in the 1970s? And it's not just the terrorism and, and the sort of like bombs and buildings and stuff. They wanted free, to free criminals. They were like early, like, you know, we're, they, I think they tried to break some guy who committed murders out of prison or they might've succeeded, um, you know, like, or maybe I, I might be mixing it up. Cause I, I, like there's, there's the, I know there's the prison breakout of Asada Shakur, for example. Um, and, but like the, you know, I think, you know, these, these are weirdo, like somebody like Chase Boudin and the weather underground, these are like the, the farthest left, like these people identified as revolutionary communists in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, like, you know, when somebody asked if they were a socialist, like Bernadine Doran said, no, I'm not a socialist. I'm a revolutionary communist. <laughs> like Cuba is what we want. Um, and I mean, they just, I think it's, it's a very bizarre and, and in my view, almost inverted ethic, uh, from like what what is justified um but and conversely that... <clears throat> conversely the argument for following the law um that's what led to a lot of the tough on crime laws that didn't necessarily drop crime and also just led to overpopulating our prisons and you know when you had for example 
something that Joe Biden voted for, right. uh, you know, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which led to mass incarceration. The whole argument and which, by the way, African-American communities asked for. They were mm -hmm. the ones who were like, hey, we want these tough on crime laws. And what it did was lock up your 18 and 19 year old kid for, you know, five and 10 years and, you know, destroy families, take fathers out of the home and further damage these communities. So how do how do we reconcile that with, you know, this this push that you guys are talking about of following the law and uh, prosecuting, you know, rather small crimes in some cases. Well, then we want to start, I mean, we want to start talking about the drug war. And then like, I mean, maybe you, you think maybe you narrow the focus of like criminal justice reform broadly, which which is incorporating le lenient sentences for serious crimes that we all agree need to actually be punished severely yeah. with drug the drug war. And maybe that that set of crimes like that needs to be where we just need to narrow the focus on it. And I guess that sort of would come back to the earlier point of if you're deciding to pick stuff like the Rittenhouse case, like you're kind of you're not you're not focusing on the thing that really is the center of the problem for your community right like i i think um and if you did focus on i mean that i guess that's that's that would be the answer there but you know so we, go ahead have you have you had uh, a chance to look at the the other trial that's going on right now the ahmad arbery trial and do you have any opinions on that uh not not ones not strong ones like i have I, I read a little bit about that when it happened but i haven't followed the evidence so i have no I, idea i did see justified. i did see that uh that the defendants who won't be testifying in this trial because they're they're apparently just awful uh is are uh the video that they showed from the police body camera they showed that the the defendants were like shifting their stories dramatically even um, right away in terms of explaining what went down they were they were pursuing Ahmad Arbery. Uh, and they claimed that they had seen him breaking into a bunch of different houses. And then they said, well, no, it was just the one construction site. And then they said, well, did you see him take anything? They said, no, we didn't actually see him take anything. And then they pursued him in this truck with these guns as he was running through the neighborhood. So it's, I mean, it sounds just like sounds, murder. Like if you're yeah, describing it that way, it sounds, sounds like, like murder to me. That sounds like murder. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what that sounds like. Yep. That sounds like first degree murder. <laughs> I think uh, we're in agreement. <laughs> right. Like now I don't, I mean, again, right. I, that's you know I've watched this trial, seen the video of it, when it comes to Rittenhouse. So I like when I say this is self defense, I am very confident in my assessment and in you know, what I say because I feel like informed. I'm not that informed of the RV trial, but I will say, you know, chasing down a guy even if he like just committed a burglary, who's running away from you and then shooting him, that sounds like first degree murder to me. Like you are not the police, you don't get the you you don't have the right to do that. Um, the the central I guess the central dispute is what happened in front of the truck because the video camera. Right. It's, you can't see what's happening in front of the truck. The claim was that Arbery went for one of the went for the gun. That's what the defense is claiming. Went for the and, gun, and so they and they decided to defend themselves with the gun. You know, you, but right now their credibility very much in doubt because of the shifting stories that they've offered immediately to law enforcement. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. anyway, it's it really comes down to the jury, right? So, so I mean, the key here is well that you need a unanimous decision, right, in order to secure a guilty conviction otherwise you've got a hung jury yeah and i mean i again i would be shocked if if the mouse were convicted i i like i i'd just be shocked I, it would be 12 jurors ignoring like i mean the burden is on the state to disprove reasonable doubt and they have they haven't produced a shred of evidence to do that so you know the burden's at 100 and they've they're at one yeah like th this should be this should be a straightforward acquittal um well shoot yeah no i'm sorry i'm sorry well I was just going to say that, it, you know, 
from the reaction of the jurors. Uh, for example, I think there was one point in the trial where um, Grosskreutz, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Grosskreutz or whatever, yeah. Grosskreutz uh, called the death of one of the other individuals a murder. Yeah. And the, um, the judge basically told the jury to disregard that. And the, one of the jurors was shaking his head in agreement. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is a good sign for Rittenhouse. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, you know, and, I, and I'll just give my opinion. I, I pretty much think Rittenhouse is going to walk on this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure that I, you know, as someone who tries to be consistent across the board, um, you know, I wouldn't convict him, uh, to be honest. I, I certainly wouldn't convict him of, of the crimes that he's accused of, except for maybe carrying the gun. Mm -hmm. um, if that's a crime, but based on what you're saying, that may not yeah. even be a crime. Yeah. The only thing that, that I have an issue with is the responsibility of the adults who put him in that position and then left him there by himself. <laughs> like that, I mean, there's, those there's... people are, are the people who anger me, the, you know, the Dominic Black who, I mean, he's 19, but he's still, you know, of age. I... Ryan Where Walsh. are the police? Why are the police just abandoning the street to rioters too, right? I mean, I, I agree with you. There's other adults like on, right. on the Rittenhouse side. There's a general failure of broader civil society. Like rioting is bad, okay? Like it's not good to let people just burn stuff down. It's And that is that is a policing decision as, as much as it is anything else. Like if you're talking about like, what could the police better spend the time on rather than, you know, like spending all their time like harassing people for marijuana possession or whatever, certainly one of the most valuable ways they could be spend their time is put down the mob when they're burning down buildings of private citizens. Well, this gets back, Will, to a point you were making, we were talking about just a moment ago about prosecution. You, know, you talk to police officers and what you discover is, especially in communities like Kenosha, in the midst of all of this unrest, it really comes down to do the cops feel backed up by the rest of the system? So what is the what's the point of putting cuffs on somebody who is not going to actually um, be taken through the system by prosecutors or prosecutors are going to simply dismiss the case? So you, you watch in like in city after city after city as the cops go, either they're told explicitly not to engage with criminality or they're saying, wait a second, why am I going to risk my life and limb to go into a situation where I'm not going to have the backing of the prosecutors or the so mayor? So guys, the, the only thing that I'll say to that is in a lot of cases, when police show up under, under those tense circumstances, particularly when people are there to uh, show their distaste for police, that's right. an escalation. Uh, and you don't want it to escalate anymore. So I think the police strategy is to build a perimeter and to hang back a little bit. Um, unfortunately, this can lead to, you know, businesses being burned and things like that. But if you go in like they did in the past in Watts and other areas, then people die. And so what they're trying to do a lot of times, you know, I, I think I'm defending the police here and their strategy here is to hang back a little bit. But it seemed like police were in the area, engaged Rittenhouse and others, and didn't tell them, hey, whoa, going into that place with your rifle is not a good idea. You guys should not do that. They seem like, hey, thanks. Thanks for well, what you're well, doing. Well, no, actually, one of the interesting things that happened and that was revealed in the trial for the first time to me is that before the shootings even happened, Rittenhouse was trying to get to one of the car sources that he had originally come from. And the police had set their line ahead of that. So they were like, and they didn't let him through and let him through to the place he was helping out. And so Rittenhouse ended up 
still kind of cabin in this like lawless zone where the police were not maintaining law and order. And that's when the, the killings happen. Um, you know, I think, I, I guess I'm a little more, I, I, I probably disagree with you. I think in general, police have been, uh, you know, not consistent enough in terms of making, you know, like putting down riots, using the non-lethal methods at their disposal, um, protecting property, protecting people's buildings, protecting cities. Um, and like, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember when, you know, maybe this is going back maybe to like 2014, 2015, but when like the, after the Freddie Gray killing, the Baltimore police were like, we need to give them their, or the Baltimore mayor was like, we need to give them their space to riot. It's space like that theory. Space to destroy. That was space the, uh, to destroy. Stephanie Rawlings Blake said that. Right. And it's like that, that nonsense needs to go away, right? Like the police are, we, the police are a public service paid for by taxpayers to, and if they're not willing to provide basic protection against, you know, a mob burning down your building, like what are the, that's, that's a core function. Um, and I think, um, you know, also what you need is, is for that kind of thing, very severe prosecutions, right? Like I think, you know, one of the things that's incredibly dangerous is some of these like extinction rebellion protests in the middle of highways. You, you've seen some of those where they like unfurl a banner and stop traffic on a highway. Mm -hmm. That should be seriously prosecuted. There's no, what they're doing is incredibly unsafe. It's falsely imprisoning random normal people just trying to go about their day, go to work, go their, their jobs. It's holding them in place for like an hour or two while they make their protest. Um, that should be seriously yeah. punished. Like it's not, cause that's, that's an unbelievably selfish and narcissistic way to protest because it, yeah. it's take exploiting other people who have nothing to do with what you're doing. Um, and I think, you know, in that, this is where Florida in my view has it right. Like, no, we're going to punish that very seriously. So that sort of antisocial protest behavior is deterred, right? Like clearly this doesn't happen. This stuff doesn't happen in Florida because the punishments are severe enough to deter the unlawful behavior. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, when, when you're talking about drugs, deterrence is a much shakier thing because drugs are obviously addictive. But when it comes to like the method of protest and whether people protest in selfish and destructive ways, you can clearly deter some of that with properly punishing behavior that that is hurtful and, and, and um, you know, disrespects the, you know, other people's autonomy. Well, I'll definitely tell you that blocking the roads is, is a bad way to protest. Uh, I remember when all of that was going on and I, I got heavily slammed by people on the left because around that time, you know, I think my mother had just passed away and I was thinking about when she was sick. And I was like, if an ambulance needed to get through and she were in the back of that ambulance, she would have died, you know, because of what was going on at the protest. I think there needs to be, at least keep half of the road open so that emergency vehicles can get through. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there that, the, that if you're blocking an entire road an entire highway or anything like that, there needs to be a serious punishment for that. Uh, I also, at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I understand that when people protest that there is no acceptable way to protest. And I think this is the argument that a lot of people on the left, uh, I think, including me, make is that Colin Kaepernick, for example, kneels silently. And all of a sudden, that's not an acceptable way to protest. So it's like, wh what is it? You know what I mean? Like kneeling silently isn't acceptable. This isn't acceptable. And, you know, my thing is because you don't want to protest. And that's the point of a protest is you are, you are trying to make people somewhat uncomfortable. Um, but I definitely think that, they're, that you're going over the line when you're endangering people uh, and making our society less safe. And so lying in the road is not only unsafe for you, it's unsafe for 
uh, others who may need emergency help at that time. And, yeah, and it's, and it's holding of, captive the people who were in their cars. Like, I, I don't think that's yeah. trivial to just be forced, <clears throat> held captive in your car for an hour. There were a couple like, of uh, New Jersey, a couple of New Jersey uh, uh, government officials who were prosecuted for this very thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> they, during, and they damn well should have been. They, I mean, the Chris it, Christie, it'd be a travesty if, if they were not, not for, tossed in jail for that. I, yeah, I, I don't a, remember the exact details, but they, if they didn't go to jail for that, that would be a travesty. It was a political protest that they were they were leading <laughs> by shutting down <laughs> very, the bridge. Very droll. Very bridge droll. traffic. And, uh, and then, of course, they got uh, prosecuted for it, convicted. Yeah, I, I um, mean, I, I definitely think um, when we're talking about police engaging, um, you know, protests that have that have gone in a certain way. Number one, police don't need any more bad press in those kinds of situations. So I'm going to defend the cops again. Yeah. They don't need to be seen grabbing protesters and throwing them against walls and putting them in the back of vans. Um, as a matter of fact, they, they want the public to trust them because police operate off of public trust. So the worst thing they could do, I remember one situation, you mentioned Baltimore, mm -hmm. where police showed up and were kind of approaching a bunch of children. And then it kind of exploded where the children started throwing rocks at them um, at, a, at a, like a bus depot or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think in that situation, when emotions are high, it's probably best to hang back a little bit. Sure, sure. I, I'm not. I'm not for you know the 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 war. You know the wanton slaughter of children throwing rocks at police officers. Yeah, <laughs> I, am, I am certainly anti killing children. Let's let's let's. Well, I'll, I'll make that. Yeah, a yeah, I, I wasn't even talking about killing. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. You know, it makes me think, Jason. Remember putting that, a tough um, situation. Sure, sure. We're putting police in I'm a being, tough situation, I, I, I and I think point, it's probably yeah. best. In, in some situations when police leadership says, hey, hang back a little bit. You know I, what I look, mean? I, have, I have a mixed, I have a, like a hybrid view of this and it, and it might be the one that Will shares, I'm not sure. But like, I do think like seeing images of police actually enforcing the law is a way to deter people from breaking it. So I, I'm, I don't, I'm not against it in all cases, uh, clearly. And then there's like examples of like, remember from Buffalo, New York, the police line that was moving down the road kind of slowly. There was an old man clearly like enfeebled who got shoved over by police and then his head was cut open. Do you remember that video? It was yeah, like a, I do remember that. It was yeah. awful. I don't, I don't remember that one, but I'm, I, yeah. I, I, I'll take your word for it. Like, yeah, just on his it. face, you watch it well and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that to that guy. Like there are excesses, of course, and they should be punished. And that's just ridiculous. And and the sort of the 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 amount of force that it, uh, uh, that lawbreakers are met with should be commensurate to what they deserve. You know what I mean? It's not like it's right. it, it shouldn't just be like you know force for force's sake and to to be on a power trip and, and so i so i guess in that way i i agree with you jason and I, I just think that like it is useful to have deterrence it is useful to express that hey yeah the law is being enforced in this town for these people and so don't come here and break the law and make their lives worse i think another thing is just you know with law enforcement from prosecutors uh and your attorney general um or your district attorney down to your rookie cop. The key is to build trust within the community. And if you right. do that, and of course, you know, we start with community policing. I understand that you can police a much larger area if you're in a vehicle. But if you never get out of the vehicle, you never meet people in the community. One of the things that I think you would be shocked about is people say, oh, nobody wants to, to talk to police. It's because they don't know the police. You know, if mm -hmm. I know Will, you know, I'm probably going to, you know, if I see him every morning, 
He comes by, gives my grandmother coffee or whatever. We have some sort of relationship, even if I'm like, hey, Will's a pig or whatever, all that. Even if Because I've seen these interactions where, you know, even in, in some communities when I was a kid, where, you know, guys would joke the, the local cop that was walking around the community, you know, but then it was like, yeah, he's cool. You know, what I mean? like that was almost like him being accepted. So my point is, when we have community policing, then you'd be shocked how many people might be like, hey, you, you know what happened? It happened down the block. I'm, I don't want to say too much because I don't want you to subpoena me or whatever, but maybe you should talk to this guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then you start to build up trust if Will has a, an encounter where someone gets hurt or God forbid someone dies, people are more likely to hang back and say, hey, let's wait until the facts you know, come out yeah. and the circumstances and, and not necessarily jump out there and be like, Will's gotta be a bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no trust because of the way yeah. we police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also most particularly in urban areas where there are black and Latino people, we all, I, I met very few, including police officers, including black cops who haven't had a really bad, displeasurable uh, encounter with police, Yeah, you know? And then when you go into the legal system, one of the things that came out of Ferguson, you know, was that one of the ways that they generated revenue was court fines and you know so they yeah, were just, that's no good that's they were no good. bleeding this community dry going into the poor black community finding small infractions and this is one of the things that that i was trying to allude to we went into marijuana but even with speeding or whatever it is these small infractions getting you to just have to pay a small fine um was a was a i think the second highest ge uh revenue generator for the town and I think yeah. that that is the kind of thing that a lot of black communities are like, we don't trust the police. We don't trust the judges. We don't trust anything. Right. And I mean, fair point. I think that, you know, that like goes back to kind of the drug war sort of destroying that type of policing, putting the police kind of at war with the population that they're policing rather than it's sort of like a cooperative effort between your citizen, the citizens and the cops to apprehend like criminals, those who are, those who are disrupting public safety and, and, you know, make, making other people's person and property insecure um, or taking lives. Um, that's the partnership that needs to happen again. I think, you know, that's what you're aiming for. And I think, you know, we're, we're not really that far apart then because it's really like, you know, if I guess when we talk about criminal justice reform, it's like, I'm not, I'm not thinking like, well, broadly sentences need to come down. It's like, no, it depends, right? Like right. murder sentences don't need to come down. Our robbery sentences don't need to come down. They need to stay high. That behavior is terrible. And, and mm -hmm. there's, there's a variety of reasons those sentences need to stay high and people need to stay in jail for those crimes. Um, but then on the other side, drug war stuff, like, yeah, it's destroying policing. It's, over, it's overly punitive. You can go down the list. Um, you know what's, re what's really interesting, Will and, and mm -hmm. Vince, um, the, the conversation that's been started around uh, incarceration with January 6th, and I find that so fascinating that now the right is championing the idea that maybe our prison, the conditions in our prisons aren't good. You know, maybe solitary confinement is, is torture. Like now the right is starting to come along, you know, or come around to these ideas. Sure. Now that people 
from January 6th are like, whoa, I'm in a jail cell and this is not comfortable at all. Like this, this is not only not comfortable, this is inhumane. Mm -hmm. And what I will say is that it's disappointing because of the political discourse being so divided that people on the left can't recognize that now. Now they're like, no, 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 no. Now, you know, now we don't want to talk about that. And it's also kind of actually scary because it's like, you know, for the left to, you know, the right has like a broader law and order thing. And I guess they're finally sort of, you know, having a reactionary thing where they're realizing like, whoa, wait, it's, this is really abusive. We need to do something about this. But then the left being like, having been fully aware of the abuses for a very long time and like campaigning on them is suddenly like, actually, no, make those people suffer. And you're like, whoa, dude, that's like almost sadistic. Like, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it's <laughs> yeah. also because of because of the victims, because the right never cared when these were black and brown people who were saying prisons are terrible places. These are break us. You know, these these are really horrible situations and more innocent ones of us go to these prisons and you know, you didn't care. And now after one event, all of a sudden you're excited about it. So uh, I, know, I get it, that. I get that. Fair, you know, it's a fair critique of the right, um, as a, broadly speaking. Um, that I think said, both sides are wrong. Is my point? Yeah, yeah. Is my right. point? Um, you know? But I, I, I'd agree with that. I think that there's. I mean, the January sixth thing is a whole different pill of beans. There have definitely been particular and specific problems with DC jails that are also probably common to DC criminal justice generally. Um, like you know, we we saw a guy who like. You know, they, the guy broke his arm in May had a, and had gotten surgery by November that his doctor had recommended. I mean, that's like, well, that's, you know, he, I don't know if you saw that story about how um, the guy held um, the uh, D.C. jail warden in criminal contempt. Like he, the D.C. jail warden was held in criminal contempt by yeah. a D.C. judge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are people, I can, I can tell you stories of people who I know who have been incarcerated, who have seen people with all kinds of ailments um, who have not been treated um, or, you know, they say they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they say they're sick. They try to go to the infirmary and they're just like, eh, sleep it off. <laughs> you know, And it turns out to be something really serious. Um, I, uh, this is, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but it's related just in terms of like jail and health. Like I, I used to do uh, crime reporting in North Carolina when I was living there. And uh, one of the things I found out from the sheriff was that they had people who would intentionally uh, get reincarcerated in order to get medical care. Yeah. So like if they had like, if they had like a heart problem, like a dramatic heart problem, and they did, they couldn't afford to take care of it outside of prison, they would commit a crime to get arrested, to be thrown back in jail just so they could get their heart surgery done on the taxpayer dime. It was, it was wild. He's like, he, I couldn't believe these stories even back then. That was, I was a cub reporter well, kind of reporting on what was going down and that's, and people take desperate measures, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, there are people that do that for three hots and a cot too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, people who, you know, haven't really committed a crime or, you know, but they'll, they'll commit one in order to make sure that their basic needs are taken care of. Um, there's so much in our criminal justice system that we need to take care of. Um, we need one of the things, and I don't know if Will, if you, you would agree here, but, um, I think one of the, the critiques that I have of the right and the way that they treat criminal justice is this idea that everything needs to be treated by by a criminal response or by by you know policing um and you know we have things like mental health concerns and i think rosenbaum is a perfect example of this rosenbaum should have been getting help you know yeah. he should he should you know it's it seems like he was 
kind of living with his girlfriend in a motel. Uh, he was homeless a lot of the time. Um, he obviously had some serious yeah. mental health concerns. We need, to, we need to reopen the mental health facilities. I think my friend Jack Vasovic made a point that uh, in the aftermath of one flew over the cuckoo's nest going super popular in the 1970s, you had this massive dismantling of America's system of mental hospitals. Uh, and the consequences are, are everywhere and they're not good. Um, you know, basically the people just, a big chunk of the homelessness problem is really a mental health problem, sure. right? Like undiagnosed mental health and untreated mental health issues. So as a society, right. I think we did, we have not, serve that population well. And, and as a result, we've also made our, our streets um, more, we've made our streets more unsafe. It's not good for anybody, right? It's not good for those suffering from mental illness. It's not good for the, you know, the average citizen, um, you know, who has to deal with it, like in, in a situation that can be very dangerous for them. And, yeah, not and, and there, there needs to be another number other than 911, where they don't send police, where they send people who are trained to deal with mental health crises. Yeah, that's, that's, people. that's, Perhaps. I, I mean, I think, you know, you have to pick the situation, but there's, there's also going to be plenty. I think you're, you know, people have tend to, the left tends to overstate how, like, you know, there's a lot of those situations where you still need the police, even though it is still, a, it might be a mental health problem, but it, there's also this, an element of dangerousness sure. that requires well, they're, you know, they're armed or, yeah, or they're, they're armed or they're hurting people, but I've seen guys who were just you know, like shouting in the middle of the street and, you know, police come and they do, you know, what police do. And yeah. they're not necessarily trained for that. So I think a lot of times, and this is something that Vince and I have talked about several times, mm -hmm. is that, you know, a lot of times we talk about, I think the left said the wrong thing when they were saying defund the police, should have been deburdening the police. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the police uh, don't need to be, they, they should be the backstop, not the front you know, not the thing to deal with every societal problem that we have. Sure. Um, and that's overburdening them. And I think some of their, some of that funding that we put into law enforcement could go into other areas and we could still end up paying police officers more money, which I think they deserve. I don't know. I mean, it's going to depend on the situation. I think, yeah, they, they should have stayed away from the police officer's budget, maybe, you know, but I, I can see deburdening them and getting, giving them more time to focus on the serious problems that face, yeah. face these places. All right, we've got, I, I know uh, Will's been generous with his time. We got to get back to letting him take a look at this trial with uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. There's been some drama on it. Uh, but in the meantime, I want, do want to mention that Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. And, and gentlemen, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your time today, Will Chamberlain. And as always, your time, Jason Nichols. Uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you, Will. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Will. Thanks, Vince. Yeah, thanks for having and, me. Sure thing.